Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo podcast where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Welcome to the Paseo Podcast, everyone, and thank you for downloading this episode. If you are not already keeping up with us, uh, you can do so at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you really like what you hear, keep us in a space of growth and expansion of our Paseo Podcast familia by giving us a good rating and leave a comment on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on. Do whatever you want. There's no pressure. Uh, if you can do that, we appreciate it. If you don't, it's all good. On today's show, we welcome novelist Maricel Vera. We're going to talk about growing up in Chicago, specifically in the Humble Park neighborhood. We're going to also talk about the white-dominated publishing industry and, among other things, her latest novel, The Taste of Sugar. I came across this book in the Washington Post. They gave the book really good reviews and highly recommended it. Without giving too much away, the story takes place just after Puerto Rico came under U.S. rule in 1898. It follows newlyweds Valentina Sanchez and Vicente Vega's journey from Puerto Rico to work on sugar plantations in Hawaii after losing everything in the San Siriaco Huracan. In addition to the Washington Post, O Magazine, and The New Yorker also had great things to say about it. Side note, in the interview, I say The New York Times instead of The New Yorker, perdoname, uh, one of the rare missteps on the Paseo podcast. Now, I'll admit I'm not much of a fiction reader, but I've been reading this book and it's been worth every page flip so far. Maricel is also currently working on a novel about four Puerto Rican girls growing up in 1970s Chicago with the working title, The Girls from Humble Park. So we'll get more details from Maricel on that and more in this episode. But first, let's cover some news. First off, the COVID-19 vaccine has made its way to Puerto Rico. The first vaccine was given to Jahaira Alicea, a respiratory therapist who treated the first two COVID-19 patients hospitalized on La Isla. Puerto Rico has been hit hard by the virus, so um, you know, fingers crossed this means we're on a path to recovery for people on La Isla from this deadly pandemic. Speaking of the COVID-19 vaccine, friend of the show, Dr. Marina Del Rios, made headlines this past Tuesday when she became the first person in Chicago to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. It was actually live-streamed here in Chicago for everyone in the city to see. Here's the audio of what that sounded like. All right. So we applaud? I think so. Riveting audio, I know, but trust me, watching it in person, it was pretty riveting stuff. So here's what Marina had to say to CNN after receiving the vaccination. I've been very lucky that my own family hasn't, uh, I haven't had any losses in my family. A lot of people have gotten sick with COVID and I've gotten anxious about it, but I did lose some friends. Um, and I, and I know of friends that have lost their parents or their siblings. Um, for Latinos, one out of four know someone that has died of COVID. And, uh, and so knowing that maybe there's an end to that soon is, uh, 
again, it's hopeful, it's encouraging, it's a, it's a reason for celebration. So that was what, uh, again, just what Dr. Marina said after uh, receiving the first COVID vaccine here in Chicago. Now, I know there's a lot of hesitancy about the COVID vaccines and, and how fast they were developed right now. Uh, so Marina proved, you know, she's a, a very brave person this week uh, by being first in line. If you're hearing her name for the first time, Dr. Del Rios is the Director of Social Emergency Medicine at the University of Illinois Health. She's also a professor, researcher, and an active member of the Health Committee of the Puerto Rican Agenda and Illinois Unidos. If you're interested in learning more about her, definitely give uh, a listen to episode 34 of our show to learn more about Dr. Del Rios and her work. This Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020, will mark the 125th anniversary of the Puerto Rican flag. Now, there's been a number of variations of the Puerto Rican bandera over the years, and this anniversary is directly linked to the adoption of the Caribe Blue Puerto Rican flag. That's the one with the light blue triangle on it. I'm actually looking at that version of the flag hanging up on my wall as you record this right now. We've talked a lot on this show about the history and importance of the Puerto Rican bandera, as well as the reverence it is shown by Boricuas on La Isla and throughout the diaspora. However, here's a quick crash course starting with Juan de Mata Tereforte. He was an exiled veteran of El Grito de Lares and vice president of the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Committee in New York City. Originally, the Lares flag was adopted amongst its members as the flag of Puerto Rico until 1895, when the current design, modeled after the Cuban flag, was unveiled and adopted by the committee. This was the same flag that was outlawed by the gag law of 1948, which made it a crime, I repeat, a C-R-I-M-E, crime, to own or display a Puerto Rican flag. And of course, this was enacted as a way to suppress the independence movement in Puerto Rico. Switching gears here, if you're a fan of the Christmas song Feliz Navidad, you'll appreciate that 50 years after it was released, its singer-songwriter Jose Feliciano, born in Lares, Puerto Rico, by the way, is celebrating with a new recording of the song, a new children's book, and a live stream concert happening this Sunday, December 20th, where the new version of Feliz Navidad will be sung. Jose is going to be joined by 30 others, including fellow Boricuas, Lynn Manuel Miranda, and La India. In an NPR article this week, Feliciano remembered writing Feliz Navidad at RCA's in Los Angeles back in 1970. He was quoted as saying, We didn't want to put out a schmaltzy Christmas album, so we decided to do it differently. And he did just that by singing bilingually and even busting out the cuatro in this Christmas classic. Now, I missed this bit of news last week, but the City Council of Springfield, Massachusetts, passed a resolution supporting Puerto Rican self-determination. So, what does this mean? The resolution calls on U.S. Rep. Richard Neal, a Democrat from Springfield, and the entire Massachusetts congressional delegation to support the Puerto Rico Self-Determination Act, which is a measure sponsored by Puerto Rican U.S. Reps Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Nidia Velasquez, both New York Democrats. Now, we've had conversations about the Puerto Rican Self-Determination Act uh, on previous episodes of the show, so definitely encourage you to go back, listen to that. We have some really good commentary from some of our past guests 
Um, but one of the sponsors of the resolution in the city council and current state senator-elect, Adam Gomez Sr., commented on the resolution saying, Puerto Ricans deserve a means that gives them the ability to choose for themselves and not a system that continues to put the decisions in the hands of Congress. Worth noting, according to the 2019 U.S. Census Bureau data, about 45% of Springfield's population identifies as Latino, most of them Puerto Ricans born there and on La Isla. It will be interesting to see if this inspires other local governing bodies with Boricua populations to pass similar resolutions in support of PR's self-determination. Definitely going to keep our eyes on that. But staying in the East Coast area here with our next news story, beginning in fall of 2022, Connecticut is going to require high schools to offer African-American, Black, Puerto Rican, and Latino studies. This makes it the first state in the nation to do so. Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont made the announcement Wednesday after signing the law. Now, to be clear, high schools are required to offer these courses, but students will not be required to take them. So they're basically electives. Either way, this is a step in the right direction. I remember learning about Puerto Rico in school, but that was like two pages. So it just wasn't enough. And frankly, the lack of attention we give to people of color who helped build this country in our education system is a true disservice to BIPOCs everywhere. Finally, Latino Rebels shared a letter signed by more than 30 progressive organizations in Puerto Rico and the diaspora calling for the Biden-Harris administration to establish clear priorities for Puerto Rico. The full letter, both in English and Spanish, asks President-elect Biden to commit to a list of priorities in hope that they are acted upon or initiated in his administration's first 100 days, even if they cannot be completed by then. These priorities fall under three buckets, including 1. Repealing PROMESA and canceling Puerto Rico's debt, 2. Ensuring a just recovery for Puerto Rico, and 3. Immediately initiating a process of decolonization and self-determination. I'd read from the letter, but it's a lengthy one, so we'll definitely include the letter in the show notes. It's definitely worth reading. Underneath those three buckets I just mentioned, there's a number of sub-bullet points that tackle a lot of good stuff, and they really bubbles up to the surface. A lot of the issues people in Puerto Rico and in the diaspora have been advocating for a number of years now, uh, so definitely give that a read. That's our rundown for today's episode, y'all, and our last rundown until the start of the new year. No, that was a lot of information, so let's transition and close out the year with our last guest of 2020, Maricel Vera. Keep in mind, there was construction going on next door during this interview, so you might hear some wildness happening in the background, but we tried to limit most of it for your listening pleasure. So let's jump into the interview. Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is Friday, December 11th, but that does not matter because it's a podcast, so you're listening to this whenever, wherever you are. Point is, we're super happy you're here. Thank you for downloading this episode because joining us today is novelist Maricel Vera. You may have read her previous book, If I Bring You Roses. Well, she has a new book out that everyone is talking about. In fact, the Washington Post listed it as one of the notable books of 2020. New York, the New York Times has talked about it. O Magazine has talked about it. People are enjoying this book. The new book is called The Taste of Sugar. Maricel Welcome to the Paseo Podcast. Happy to talk and excited to talk to you about your book today. But first off, I mean, how are you doing? 
I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to talk to a fellow Boricua. Yes, oh, we're super happy to have you here. Uh, what should our audience know about you? Uh, that I am a Humble Park girl at heart. You can't take the Humble Park out of me, and I don't want to. Nice. <laughs> I feel the same way. Born and raised in Humble Park. So I think I think this is like a big deal. Like this is going to be our last episode to close out 2020. So very fitting to have a fellow Boricua from Humble Park uh, to round out our year. Going into your background just a bit here. What part of Puerto Rico is your family from? My um, great grandparents came from Utuado and Adjuntas, uh, like one of the characters in my novel, Vicente Vega. Uh, but my uh, family comes from the mountains in Penuelas, which is like near Ponce. When did your family come to Humble Park from Puerto Rico? Well, my parents came in the 1950s separately, uh, but during um, Operation Bootstrap, mm -hmm. Manos a la Obra. Uh, and um, they, um, I think that I wasn't born in Humble Park. Uh, and I don't, I know that there were a lot of Puerto Ricans that lived around uh, Lincoln Park, but I'm not sure where they lived, somewhere mm -hmm. on Kedzie, I think. But they moved to Humble Park when I was about four or five years old, because I remember very clearly the night we moved to Humble Park. It, there was snow on the ground, it was night, and my father was carrying my youngest sister, and I have like, sometimes I think in images, and I have this image of it being, uh, you know, black and white, black because mm. it was a night and white because of the snow and my father in this dark coat carrying this very small child and how it seemed to me that it took forever to get from like the street where the car was parked to go up the stairs to the building. It was on a third floor. We lived there for like 18 years in a same one bedroom apartment. Um, and recently I was driving by there and I'm, I'm like, I have a different, um, the reality is different from the, uh, the, the my um, my memory because it's not that far from the street to go on. The <laughs> but I always have that image. I was so long. So I read in a previous interview that your dad was a factory worker in Chicago. My abuelo was a factory worker as well. He's he worked in a few factories. Uh, one of them being a diaper factory, which I always found interesting. Um, do you remember what factory work, what type of factory work your father was doing well, at the time? Uh, my father was a welder. Um, that was like the the last. He learned to be a welder, but at one time he did like electrical work. It's like whatever. And my mother actually worked in a factory once too. She worked in the um, rock candy factory. Uh, and I remember that because she only worked for two years there. She did the second shift. My father worked the first shift. He would come home and my mother went to work in the second shift and she would come home like at midnight. And uh, on Fridays was our favorite day of the week because mommy would come with this brown box like, like uh, the way they used to package donuts, you know, bakery box. And it was filled with broken pieces of chocolate from the factory. So I think they let the women take it uh, at the end of the week. And we, uh, my father let us wait up till midnight so that we could eat that chocolate. <laughs> oh my gosh, the happiest kids on the block. <laughs> but my, um, my father, he, um, he, his last jobs were uh, working as a welder. Uh, one time, I think that I got my um, so, social justice consciousness from them and maybe even especially my father because I remember that one time his factory went on strike for six months 
and uh, that meant my father didn't have a job. And so he was doing part-time work, picking up a job here and there to try to um, uh, feed the family. It was in the 70s. And, uh, and it was really, really hard. That was the very first time that, and the only time with that my parents ever took um, food stamps because, you know, couldn't, couldn't make ends meet. Uh, there were six of us kids. And, um, and I remember how he would not cross the picket line so this is just what you had to do in order to support the union. And how fitting that is because Chicago is like, is the birthplace of unions. Um, so working, especially that your father was, hearing your father was a welder, every time I look or go down Basel Boricua and I see those 40 plus foot banderas, mm -hmm. I mean, that is kind of like a love letter almost to the Puerto Ricans that came here or pipe fitters yeah. or welders. Um, so definitely a lot of history and to hear that your dad was a little part of that. That's, that's gotta be, that's gotta be yeah. like fascinating for you. Um, um, I wanted to say that one thing about when I was growing up that a lot of Puerto Rican men worked in the factories. So a lot of people that my parents knew and that I met through my parents, the men were missing pieces of their fingers, like their, like their, their thumbs or some of their, you know, the tips of their fingers because they lost these, this during their jobs. One time my father got something in his eye from uh, um, one of his jobs at the factory and um, thought he was gonna lose his eye. Uh, of course, the factories, they didn't care. There was no, nothing where you would, got, you would get um, money for your injury or anything like that, not during that time. You had mentioned in previous interviews that you fell in love with books at around seven or eight years old. Um, you know, what exactly was the catalyst here that eventually led you to wanting to write? It was um, my uh, my love for books, like you said, happened when I was seven or eight years old. I was in the circle, the reading circle at school, and uh, the teacher read to us. I remember the teacher very well because I hated her. She was really, really mean. Uh, I, I used to talk a lot and she always sent me out of the room during my favorite subjects, which are reading and history. And I had to stay there when it came to math. So I didn't like, um, but I remember I, one day she was reading the, in the um, story and I looked down at, at a book in my lap and I looked down at the book and I could read. The letters just, you know, just form words and sentences. And that was when I was in love. And in my house, that was really difficult because my, my father thought my reading was a waste of time. He wanted us to get an education. He always said, you need to get an education. You need to go to college. You don't wanna end up in a factory like me. He always said that, but he didn't see the value of reading um, like that it would relate to education. He just thought I was wasting my time. And he would tell me go lava los platos or something all the time when he saw me reading. So that was very challenging to, I had to like sometimes hide that I was reading, I read at night when, when everybody was sleeping. Um, I was just obsessed with it. Uh, but my mother, which is interesting, my, I remember my mother walking with me to the Humble Park branch to um, when I was very young to get books and she would carry them for me. So I, I, I those two things. Um, but when I was 13 years old and I was in seventh grade, my English teacher assigned the class to write a short story. 
And um, I don't remember what the story was about. I just remembered when I wrote that story that I felt the same thrill and joy that I felt when I was, when I was reading. And so I just like, wow, oh my God. Uh, and uh, the teacher in the class, the teacher read the, uh, she chose to read the story out loud to the class. And I got a lot of affirmation from her and from the class that I had talent. So that made the connection. And, and also in my household, um, we read the newspapers all the time. My father thought one of them was very racist and he didn't like to <laughs> have it in our house, uh, but he always read uh, in English, the newspapers. And uh, my mother didn't have time for that, but they also listened to the news. But during that time, when I wrote that short story, I've been talking about this is, um, that uh, there were a series of arsons in Pilsen. The white landlords were paying arsonists to burn down the buildings in Pilsen. And um, the people were still living in the buildings, Mexican immigrants, and they didn't know English. So when the firefighters, and they were firemen at the time came to put out the fires, they didn't understand uh, when people shot at ayuda or uh, fuego, and they didn't save a lot of people they could have saved. So in the, um, in the newspapers and letters to the editors that, pe that people wrote to the newspapers and also on the news, I remember a, a, a television news anchor in Chicago and who said it's, the, it's their fault that they don't know English. This is America, they should learn English. So here I am 13 years old and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is so unjust. Uh, I was already leaning towards that because I was reading about Puerto Ricans and how they called us thugs, criminals, all that kind of stuff. When it was, when they talked about us on news, it was always negative, nothing positive. And uh, so this just reinforced in me how um, unjust it was that just because you were different, just because you didn't speak English, it wasn't your first language um that uh you know people blamed you for your own death so i just knew that one day i was going to write about people whose first language is not english so that in a way so that people could understand that we're just people and really um kind of like live in our skin and so at that time i thought i was going to be a journalist because i didn't know anything about being a novelist and I never ever saw myself represented in books, never. So until like 20 years ago, seriously, I never ever even dreamed that I could be a novelist. And I think there's something to be said for representation across industries, especially yeah. in the publishing industry in that in that space. We, before we started recording, you were talking about this New York Times piece where it was talking about the whiteness in the publishing industry and the overwhelming majority that is essentially cut out for for our white brothers and sisters. And yet people of color. Puerto Rican authors like yourself are are kind of they kind of just get this little sliver of the pie. Um, and looking back at connecting this to you, know, you growing up in Humble Park, me growing up in Humble Park, you know, I remember thinking growing up, you know, my only interpretation or understanding of being Puerto Rican was, of course, Paseo Boricua, um, the conversations I'd have around the dinner table with my family. But uh, a lot of times. What I knew about Humble Park was coming from what I'd see on the news. And 
seeing my our people represented my people represented in handcuffs or because there was a shooting or there was a riot uh and looking at growing up in Humboldt park and seeing all the positive things being done i was like well what what does this mean for for me where do i fit in in chicago where do i fit in in society what are the parameters of what's possible for me um so looking at you getting into um the writing world you, know, you said 20 years ago, you know, you didn't realize that there was a place for you here. Like, can you speak to the importance of representation in the publishing industry and a little bit about your story and how you came to realize like being a novelist was actually something that was attainable for you? You know, um, I don't even know if I thought that it was attainable. Mm. I just thought I am going to write a novel and I'm going to, uh, this is what I'm gonna do. And I hope that I will be able to get an agent that I'll be able to find someone who will um, feel that uh, my work speaks to them or at least understands it. It's very, very hard in the publishing world that our article that you're talking about said 82% of publishing is white. And what that means is they're talking about the editors, they're talking about the PR people, they're talking about the publishers, they're talking about everybody that makes a decision to uh, whether or not to buy a book and how much to pay. And uh, I was really lucky that I, I have the same agent that I had um, for my first novel and she gets my work. She's a white Jewish woman and she gets my work. So I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, but representation really matters because it's not absolutely necessary, but it helps if you see somebody who's kind of like you and they, um, and they made it. So that's one way it matters. Another way that it matters is if my book does really well, then someone uh, else like me who is, has an agent and uh, in fiction, you need an agent. Someone else like me who wrote a book might get their book bought because they might say, oh, Marisa Rivera's book did really well. She's Puerto Rican like, like this person. Maybe, um, you know, there's a market. Uh, so that's how, why representation matters because if we see ourselves and we can dare to dream, basically that's why representation matters. We can dare to dream. It took me so many years to dare to dream that I could be a novelist. And that was only when I was already grown. I had two small children and I knew I was a writer, uh, but I didn't think that I could, that I was worthy, worthy of being a novelist because for me, novelists were these gods and goddesses because I revered the, the novel so much. And I never saw anybody like me. Um, and in a, I never read about myself in a book. And you don't have to. You can write without reading yourself. But it would be nice once in 200 books that you read, you saw somebody like that. And I feel like now there are more books be, uh, being published by Latinas and Latinx people, Puerto Ricans, but not that many. You could probably fill the bookshelves that I have behind me, maybe. I mean, think about it. You could probably, if you give it some thought, uh, name all the Puerto Rican writers, but you could never do that with the white writers. Obviously, we are underrepresented. And, and you know what? 
let me tell you the truth. It is very, 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 very hard. <laughs> I want to cut some of these berries to get your book published. I have a really great agent. She did all the homework. She compared my novel to, um, uh, you have to like do comparables. I compared this novel, Marisa Vera's novel is, by, is comparable to this novel. And she didn't even compare it the way I thought it should have been compared. Because this is a political novel. It should have been compared to books about colonialism. That's my opinion. That's how I wanted her to pitch it, but she didn't feel that it could be pitched like that. And I respect it. I know that she knows her business. What's that like when you feel like it should, your novel should be compared to other novels in a specific genre and that's not how it's pitched? Like, how do you, how do you have that conversation with your agent? Well, like, do you just say, okay, well, if that's the best based on your comparables, let's go with it. Like, how do you well, kind of... Uh, the, the job of the agent is to uh, sell your book. If they don't sell it, they don't make a profit. And that's just the way it is. And my agent, I had her from the first uh, novel and I really trust her because she read so many drafts of this book before it was um, e even ready to be pitched. And uh, like she would give me one sentence. She's a kind of uh, person who gives you like one or two sentences and then you figure it out. And that's what I like. I don't like people telling me anything, I like to figure it out. So I really trust her that she knows. Uh, I have to say that she was very surprised at how hard it was to sell this book. I had one offer, one. Wow, that's surprising. Do you remember that article we talked true, about? True, 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 yeah. That was just today. 82% of publishing is white. It's very hard. That article talks about a study that they did and how many, uh, they only chose like uh, three different publishers and they, how many people of color published and how little they paid, little you get for your advance. So, so basically, if you really want to be a novelist, go for it. And I hope that doors will be open by the time your novel is ready. Um, and I don't know what can change. Maybe we, uh, right now there's more disclosure about the advances people are getting compared to the, the POC writers, black writers, compared to white writers, white, white, uh, white writers. I mean, oh my God, it's like night and day. <laughs> Seriously, one of, one of the stories that, I could not get over was my uh, agent told me about this one editor at this one publishing house who um, told her that he wanted to love my novel, but he didn't want a history lesson. And he especially wanted to love it because he has a house in Vieques. So when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, that is racist. Oh my, my gosh, that's my, like saying I would I would love to love your book because my best friend's Puerto Rican or I have a friend that's Puerto Rican. Yeah. I'm like, okay, so you have a house in Vieques. You live you live there some of the time. You you know Puerto Ricans. You don't care about knowing really anything about Puerto Ricans. You don't care about knowing about the history of the place that you're living in. You just want to be on the island. And and you want you want a book about an island girl falling in love with an American probably. That's not the book I'm writing and I'll ever write, <laughs> but yes, it's so, it's so hard and disheartening. You brought up a number of really good points. I'm just thinking about the, 
the value that's attributed to certain swaths, certain groups of people. Correct me if I'm not breaking this down right, but if you have um, 82% of the public publishing industry that's white, who's to prevent them from saying, you know what, this book on avocado toast is worth $25. But this book that is about the Puerto Ricans working in the sugarcane fields, five bucks, 10 bucks. There's no, there's no accountability to say, you know, no, this should be on par with, uh, you know, in this upper echelon or in this category of book, it's all arbitrary based off of feeling, um, and opinion. And and the way it works is that they'll offer you Mm $10,000 and they'll offer a white uh, writer for the avocado toast, a hundred thousand dollars. Right. That's the way it works. We're gonna take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, because when we come back, we're gonna talk to Maricel about her latest novel, The Taste of Sugar, what life was like at the turn of the century for Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans in Hawaii, what project she's working on next, and more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's p-a-s-e-o-p-o-d at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. And as I said at the top of the show, you know, Washington Post, one of their, it, was not, it made their list of one of the notable books of 2020. New York Times had great things to say. Oh, Magazine, that's Oprah's Magazine for people listening in case you don't know. You know, it sounds like readers and critics alike are really enjoying it. So for people hearing about the Taste of Sugar for the first time, uh, can you give us like a, a little breakdown? What is this novel about? Well, it's about um, a family who, because of two, two huge events that take place in Puerto Rico uh, at the end of the 19th century, choose to go to Hawaii to work in a sugar plantation. Hmm. And uh, the two huge events are the U.S. invasion of Puerto Rico in 1898 the Americans come in and they um, set up a military government. They um, devalue the money by 50%. Mm, It was silver, like a silver dollar. Uh, And the interesting thing about that is that there there are some people, including Americans, uh, and some of the books that I read, I I did a lot of research, nonfiction research, uh, 
who said that um, by adding 5% of silver, it made an American silver dollar. So basically what happened was after a certain period of months, the Puerto Ricans couldn't use their uh, money anymore, which has something to do you know, with Spain. It's not a Spanish colony. So, so then you turn in your money and who, who has that money? The Americans, they take it to, out of the country. They add 5% of silver, you got your dollar. So kind of like they um, stole. And, and so they changed the tax laws uh, Spain used to tax on your labor and the Americans taxed on your property. So you have less money now. The prices are still the same. Um, and uh, now there's this hurricane. San Siriaco, very similar to Hurricane Maria, devastates the island in a very similar way. Um, over 3,000 people died. And uh, one of the things it did was it uprooted the coffee trees up in Utuado, very similar uh, devastation to Hurricane Maria. So now my, fam my family in the novel who are farmers uh, were doing terribly with when the Americans came in and now they don't even have coffee trees for coffee. Uh, and another thing that the US did that hurt my family was they changed the taxation like the import export duties. Um, during a period of my novel, Puerto Rican coffee was the best coffee in the world. They drank it at the Vatican, in Paris, everywhere. Um, and once the Americans come in, they lose those markets because they don't uh, have European markets anymore. If they were to ship to Europe, they would have to pay a lot of money. Spain used to give them like special uh, tariffs and now they can't ship to Cuba either. Um, because of the Spanish-American War. So the coffee they have in their storehouses, they can't sell. And now they can't even grow coffee because of the hurricane. So it really hurts my family. And that's why they decide that they're gonna go to Hawaii. So looking at this time period, I mean, of all the time periods to choose in Puerto Rican history, why that like time, early 1900s, late 1800s? Well, because when I came upon that fact, about 5,000 Puerto Ricans migrating to Hawaii in 1900 to 1903. I was like, oh my God, what? Never heard of it. What happened to these Puerto Ricans? Did they ever go back? Why did they leave the island? I'm always interested in why people leave Puerto Rico because as I think, always think about my father, how, how he wanted to go back and he didn't get a chance to go back to buy his little finca and uh, grow whatever and have roosters. He didn't get to do that. And so I think there's no way these Puerto Ricans could have gone back. What was happening on the island? So they were uh, forced to make this very difficult decision. And that's, so when I go back and I learn what was happening, I'm like, okay, it's even more interesting than I thought. First, I was just gonna write a, a you know, now I got the 5,000 Puerto Ricans, but now I can go back and I'm gonna go back all the way to Spanish colonialism because a lot of Puerto Ricans don't really know much about Spanish colonialism. And they think uh, Spain is like um, so wonderful. Maybe they're proud of it, but you know what? The 400 years of colonialism that uh, Spain um, was a master, they did a lot of bad shit, really horrible stuff. And, and also, they brought in uh, Africans for slaves. So I wanted to write about that um, in such a way that just to kind of like give a capsule 
Uh, and but that's why I have some of my characters be Afro Puerto Rican, so I can sort of tell them a little. Uh, oh, I love that. I mean, again, going back to representation matters. So it's not one type of Puerto Rican that exists in these stories. Like if you go on La Isla and visit different parts of the island, you're going to see different types of Puerto Ricans. So it's very true to it's very reflective of of our people. I want to go back to your characters, um, the, the protagonists of your story, newlyweds Valentina Sanchez and Vicente Vega. Um, tell us a little bit about these characters. Um, why did you choose them? What should we know about them without giving too much away? Um, what should we know about your protagonists? Well, Valentina Sanchez, um, she wants to live in Paris. That's like her dream. And she marries a farmer up in Utuado, and all he wants to do is stay there and go coffee. Oh, okay. So already there's Some a little conflict coffee. there. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah, their story uh, together is a love story, and I just love a good love story, uh, and that's why um, I have that, and I gave it to them because they represent um, not just each other. Yeah, in the novel, their own characters, but I feel like they kind of represent the way I I think a lot of Puerto Ricans are. We try to be, uh, even when times are difficult, we try to uh, find the joy in our customs, in our culture, and community, and um, and we try to bear it. We have to bear it. Uh, and they are like that. They have to bear what happens to them, but they try to, uh, with their love, they find joy in their lives and also um, with other members of their family. So for me, they, they represent kind of like representation or celebration, celebration of being Puerto Rican. In the story, they end up losing everything because of the huracan, right? And they end up yeah. having to migrate of all places to Hawaii. Uh, I want to say in the book, it's 1900, right? 1900 to 1903. Yeah, for them, it's like 1900. In fact, this December is the 120 year anniversary of the, right? Because it's yeah, yeah, yeah. 1900. Yep. Yeah, and, <laughs> like what you did there. And, yeah. and my characters left December 26th. Holy cow. And, and, and for them, it wasn't Christmas because they celebrate Three Kings. You're right. Yeah. You know? Okay. The, oh, I'm, you know, when we promote this episode, we're definitely going to have a little anniversary post on the 26th. That's super, <laughs> yeah. super cool. Uh, December, they went in the second, the second uh, shipment. I'm doing shipment with, uh, you know, these quotation marks mm -hmm. because they, that's the way the Americans thought of them. The, mm -hmm. the, the planters, property. they place orders yeah. for the number of men that they wanted and their skin color and how they wanted them to be healthy. Um, and they had to be between like 18 and 32 years old because the men were gonna work in a cane. So they had to be healthy and you know, physically able to work that very hard job. And they wanted them to bring their families with them because up to that point, they had had Asians come in um, and like the Japanese had been there for some decades and they were beginning to get their act together and, do, and try to form a union. So they didn't want that. Uh, and, uh, and the Koreans, um, 
when they came, they worked for a while, they sent their money home and then they left. So they, their, their experienced workers left. So they wanted Puerto Rican men to come with their family so they could stay there. And, um, and, and uh, during that period, the United States um, enacted a law against um, immigration by um, Asians because they were trying to, you know, they were discriminating. Mm -hmm. So that was one reason why they needed Puerto Ricans. Moving from one island to the next, and I, I totally forgot when Hawaii became a state. So when I'm reading in, so when I'm reading about your book, uh, they moved from one territory to another. What is, I mean, can you kind of paint the picture for us? What is it like for Puerto, this 5,000 wave of Boricuas that go from La Isla to the other Isla in Hawaii? What's, what, what is life like for them there? I mean, were they segregated? Were they welcomed with open arms? Were they treated fairly, unfairly? Like, can you set that scene for us? Well, I think it depended on the camp and the island. Mm -hmm. But they segregated you by your nationality because they didn't want like the Puerto Ricans and newcomers, they don't want them to get too friendly with the Japanese who know what's going on and you know have a lot of experience and maybe they could get together and go on strike. Eventually, uh, after some years, they um, did get together and they tried to change uh, conditions, but that was one thing that they did, they segregated. Um, you by by uh, nationality and race, um, and they lied to the Puerto Ricans. They had this uh, contract. Um, they sent agents to Puerto Rico, enticing men like Vicente Vega, my novel, to come to Hawaii. And they are they're offering all these things. They're offering education for their children, schools. They're offering uh, free health care, homes. Um, and some of the people who left didn't have homes because of the hurricane. So it all sounds really great. But when they get there, they learn, most of them learn, it's not so wonderful. Um, they were like my characters. When the men get to Hawaii uh, and they, Vicente Vega and his family go to the big island. So Hilo. So when they're in, um, uh, when they're in, when they get to Hilo, uh, there, the plantation, plantation men are there to take them to go cut cane. As soon as they get off the boat, they take them to the fields to cut cane. And they've been traveling for how many days? They, it, they were left by ship. And when they got to New Orleans, they had to, the, the train took them all across uh, from New Orleans to San Francisco. Then they got on another boat. Then they got on another boat to Hilo. And when they get there, they got to go cut cane. And it's not like they slept in beds. They did in the first ship. They said in like, uh, slept like these little iron uh, cages, uh, you know, the, the way they had it and steerage. If you know anything about history, you probably get an idea. Um, but when they got to New Orleans, they're sitting up on the train. Uh, and it's not, you know, it's like third class. So they're sitting up on these wood benches. Uh, and then when they get to Hawaii, I mean, to San Francisco and they take in the boat, they're um, one of the boats, they're on deck for like three or four days. The sun, the water, the heat, seasickness. And then you expect them to go cut cane and they do because what choice do you have when people have rifles Right. You know, 
One thing that I was really lucky, this uh, librarian at the University of uh, Honolulu, because I couldn't go there and go through, you know, um, go through their library and get all the information. I told her about my project. So what she did for me, she gave me this great gift. She Xeroxed every single newspaper in Hawaii, there were at least three, that had the word Puerto Rican and Puerto Rico in it from 1900 to 1903. So and then she sends me these copies. So I'm able to read about what people think about um, Puerto Ricans and how they treat them. And so very similar to what happened in Chicago in the very beginning, uh, everybody loves the Puerto Ricans because they're very hard workers. Uh, uh, some of the women work as maids, uh, but by the end of the year, they're not so loved because Puerto Ricans were different from um, people who came from other countries. The Puerto Ricans were used to the men. If it's raining like crazy in their, uh, wherever they live on the island, uh, okay, today's not a good day to rain, you know, the saguacero, whatever. So then they wouldn't go to work. But there in Hawaii, they're compelled by gunpoint to go to work. And so that was a problem. And also the Puerto Rican men didn't take very kindly to being whipped. And, and they thought that the women were disrespected. Um, so there was like a clash. Uh, and there was even a clash between cultures like um, the Puerto Ricans every Saturday night, they had to have a party because this is how they music and hanging out with their friends. That's how they got through the week. Uh, and so they're, um, you know, in my novel, they're next to this Japanese camp and it's like a problem with the noise, you know? Uh, and the Puerto Ricans have a problem with the Japanese because they, they have communal baths. So the, the Puerto Ricans are very, you know, they're like the time and the time period, they're all covered up. And here, I don't know how the Japanese were coming. And they're like, okay, <laughs> disrespect. So the cultural, there were a lot of cultural um, difficulties and misunderstandings because they didn't know each other's culture. Yeah, definitely seems like a lot of cultural clashes. Uh, that, <laughs> thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, it's interesting to think that every Saturday, of course, it's the Puerto Ricanos that are like, no, it was a long day of work. We need a party. We need to like yeah. socialize. We need to like decompress from a hard, yeah. they're essentially migrant farm workers just bending over backwards to produce a product. And you got to give them, you got to let them let their yeah. hair down a little bit and relax. The Puerto Ricans brought their guitars on the boat and like That's their instruments. Uh, and there was a problem because they wanted to, some of the men wanted to play the guitar when they had a break in the mm -hmm. sugarcane fields and they didn't let them, they didn't want them to do that. <laughs> Jeez, no fun. Um, now, and, and I can imagine just back break, again, just back breaking work and to not even let people have either that when they get to Hawaii to not give them that space to just, hey, get, get settled in. We'll start bright and early tomorrow or a couple days from now. I mean, even once they get into the cadence of working throughout the work week and not giving people that flexibility to, again, just relax and recharge. Um, something just going back to your family and having union roots and just being grateful for the power of organizing. So we actually have things like a weekend and a nine to five work week and can actually have that built in. I mean, not a lot of people have that have that reality, unfortunately, where they can have that privilege to have the weekend to themselves and recharge. But thinking about how far we've come from, you're going to get whipped or 
being threatened to be shot if you don't get your job done to now having a, a, a way more rights. Um, so just putting my myself into the shoes of a Boricua in the early 1900s, looking at what life was like at that time and seeing how much time has passed to now. And yet there are still a number of things that remain the same. Um, and I, I specifically wanted to ask you about some of the parallels that I'm seeing, I've seen in your book. Um, cause you mentioned that, uh, the protagonists leave because of damage caused by a hurricane. Well, we had hurricane Maria back in 2017 that led to a lot of the same things at that time, uh, exposed Puerto Rico's weak infrastructure, um, let alone the damage of, to the infrastructure on top of that, the lack of jobs, um, you know, currently on Laila, they're threatening all types of ways to try and make the debt work out. Well, maybe yes. we'll get rid of your pensions. Who knows? You don't need that to retire, right? Come on. Can you speak to the parallels you saw in your research and how the U.S. government approached the crisis of uh, a hurricane in the in the early 1900s, late 1800s, and its response to Hurricane Maria in the modern time? Well, uh, during the period of my novel, Hurricane San Siriaco, there wasn't a, a FEMA. Uh, and uh, the United States had only been there a year. So then they have this big disaster. And what happened was President McKinley at the time, he appealed to um, Theodore Roosevelt, who was the governor of New York, and he asked him to start this newspaper campaign asking the American public to make donations to send to Puerto Rico. Uh, and kind of like what happened with Hurricane Maria, the people who really helped were the American citizens, not the government. Um, and uh, during uh, my, the period of my novel, after a year, the uh, military government in Puerto Rico, um, the, the major who was in charge got these telegrams from the United States saying, you know what? It's been a year already. The uh, Puerto Ricans, need to take care of themselves. By now the plant, the, um, the food is, the food stuff are, are growing like the plantain trees are giving plant platanos. It's not our job to feed them. They got to stand on their own two feet. And so the, what's very similar with both hurricanes is how the United States government, instead of um, trying to figure out how to um, find and develop employment or ways so that people could stay on the island and support themselves and take care of their families. They're like, why don't you leave? Why don't you go to Hawaii and work in the plantations? Why don't you go to um, Florida after Hurricane San Siriaco? Because um, the other thing is much more difficult and um, when you leave, that means there are less people and maybe more land so that Americans can buy the land. And so that people like that editor can have that house in Vieques, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. The, uh, the because gentrification of with, the island. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And uh, so instead of doing the hard, you know, the hard work of figuring out how to help Puerto Ricans so Puerto Ricans can stay in their own island if they choose to. It's so much easier for them to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to give a, a modern comparison, it reminds me of 
the Trump administration's self-imposed trade war with China and how that affected American farmers, especially soybean farmers. And what did what did the administration do? Here's a bunch of aid to our farmers to compensate for that time. So understanding the seriousness of if you lose one season or if your land is damaged by some type of natural disaster, be it a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, what have you, the ripple effect of that, it's not just a fine, it's not, a lot of times it's not a finite amount of time. In, in a lot of cases, it can destroy your entire business, your entire livelihood, and you're essentially uprooted. So hearing that that administration at that time said, you know, what? enough time has passed. Puerto Ricans are fine. They can, they yes. can figure it out on their own. And thinking about now where we, we have yet to receive full aid for the damage yeah. uh, in Puerto Rico and looking at, okay, well, in that time, um, you know, 1899, the, the hurricane hits Puerto Rico and thinking about the gentrification of the island. Well, looking at we have another max, a mass exodus similar to that time of Puerto Ricanos leaving the island to the stateside. And what happens to that land? What happens to our ability uh, to be self-determining? What happens to our ability to produce products and actually uplift our, ourselves as a whole and, and actually produce stuff? Um, just like looking at, again, just like looking at your book and the time period it hits, it, hits, uh, it takes place in, it's just, again, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Um, and, and, and it's my understanding, you started writing this book before Hurricane Maria, right? Yeah, but you know what? Even if Hurricane Maria hadn't happened, my story would still be the same because it's yeah. based on historical fact. Mm. What is interesting with Hurricane Maria is that it gave uh, maybe um, more interest to people. Yeah. Because maybe, may, you know, uh, I hope that I could still have sold the book. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah. The uh, with the hurricane too, Hurricane San Siriaco, um, during that time, the Americans had this uh, law in Puerto Rico that nobody could own more than 500 acres. And the Americans just like, uh, that was not like on the books, but they didn't force the American businessmen to abide by it. So that's how they came in, they bought the land that people had to leave and uh, the people like my characters in the novel, they have to basically, the, govern, the governor of uh, Puerto Rico, who's an American, uh, changes a tax law and basically for, they have to forfeit the land. They, they foreclose on, on their farm and the US government buys it for like, not the US government, but uh, the Americans buy it for hardly anything. Hmm. Wow. And, and we see, I mean, and that seems to be a, a similar process now where yes. there's just, there's, there, there are things worked out in our society and the way our, our society works, the way the relationship between the United States and in Puerto Rico, I mean, shoot, even here in Chicago and the way, uh, you, something like the mayoral office or the gubernatorial office, how whoever you have in position of power there can really affect yeah. how a lot of communities of color are treated and the way land is treated and valued uh, and lives are valued and resources are dedicated to. So looking at an island of 3 million Boricuas now and they have yet to receive aid, um, yeah, it's, it's a reminder that 
yes, what happened with Hurricane Maria is shocking and is unconscionable. And the way the United States has reacted is horrendous. But it's a reminder that this is something that's not new. Yeah, a sidebar to that. Please. Is bad as what happened with Hurricane Maria, terrible, and no aid, horrible. That's like uh, one one, uh, side of a wing. The other side is Promesa which would be a totally different conversation that we would need to have. That's a whole episode, (laughs) Maricel. But those two things, that's what is, I really worry about Puerto Rico. Uh, You know, there there were days when I was doing, uh, in the last, since Promesa, since before Promesa, sometimes I would be very depressed because I would think, oh my God, this is the island of my ancestors. I still have a lot of family there. And I'm afraid it's going to sink into the ocean because of... You know, the lack of care, and not just by the U.S. government, like white Americans, but also some of the elites in Puerto Rico, you know, it's just. Yeah, no, you're totally right. And if for people listening, if you're interested in learning about more pro- about Promesa, of course, use your good friend Google, but you can listen to an earlier episode of the Paseo podcast when we broke down the, the Promesa Act. But essentially, quick rundown for people hearing this for the first time, uh, oversight board, no real representation from people on the island. In fact, I don't know, know that there's even Latinx representation, maybe one or two people, but no connection to La Isla. And, and um, they're like colonizers. Yes. They're like, they're like uh, you know, the, the two people who I think there were two Puerto Ricans, but we can put them in the colonizer class. Yes. And essentially, as 100%. <laughs> Um, I mean, that whole act is very much a colonizer legislation. Um, uh, and yeah, it's, it's worth saying that was a Democrat run administration. So we have to look at, when we look at Puerto Rico policy, it's about holding leaders accountable. It's not about what party affiliation they're a part of. It's, you know, how, how are they looking at Puerto Rico? Even like this conversation about statehood, like I see it. Like, oh my gosh, the Puerto Ricans demand statehood. But if anybody really had the temperature of the island, the, the Puerto Rican diaspora, I mean, you'd realize that that's such a nuanced conversation. And yeah. But if you don't have people with that connection, how can you rightfully think that they're going to make decisions within the best interest of the Puerto Rican people? It's just it, so, so something like Promesa just it does not compute. It does not no. make any no. sense. So you brought up a good point. Who in our society do we do we give a voice to? Who do we uplift? Um, and who do we suppress? Uh, and I speak about the powers that be, the people that, that run our country, the people we put into office. Um, it's all about what we value. And when we, when we look at the Puerto Rican people, I mean, it's like one slap in the face to, uh, after another. Uh, and again, that's why I appreciated your book, because there is a lot of parallels in here. And it shows, once again, that, you know, again, a lot of time may have passed, but a lot of the same issues that were discussed that are being faced by Puerto Ricanos in the early 1900s. A lot of the same issues we're dealing with now and trying to advocate for policy that remedies a lot of the issues that not only people here in the diaspora feel, but people on La Isla feel. Um, but looking at looking at um, looking at your book for people that pick this up, for people that have read it already. You know, what are you hoping Puerto Rican readers take away from your book? And what are you hoping non-Puerto Rican readers take away from it? Well, I hope that with the Puerto Rican readers, and this has happened to me already, um, readers who don't know uh, how Puerto Rico became a colony of the United States uh, can learn that in 
the taste of sugar and can celebrate uh, their history as Puerto Ricans. And for if they're like somebody like me who didn't know where I came from or why my parents came to Chicago, uh, I hope that this can help. And also the first novel, but especially this one, The Taste of Sugar can help them to understand the history of how um, Puerto Rico is a US colony. And I've had people tell me that for the first time in their lives, they feel seen. Because that's not something that you usually see somebody like me or like you in a novel, or you see your ancestors in a novel, uh, or figure out where your ancestors came from and you know, uh, see where, where you come in there. Um, so I hope that for Puerto Ricans, this will be like a celebration and also a maybe a discovery because uh, the United States tried it with, um, basically, I think, erase us, erase our history. And so I'm hoping that with the taste of sugar, this will help add to the, um, to us really seeing ourselves. And um, the other part of your question was, oh, for non- For non-Puerto Rican readers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, but to, your, to your point, I think, yeah. there, I, I think for, for Puerto Rican readers, I mean, like me, like I learned that there was another mass migration of Puerto Ricans. Like it, it's definitely, it definitely helps combat the erasure that our people have seen uh, over the, over the generations, over the decades. Um, but anyway, sorry. So I, I just no, was, no. was really feeling what you were saying there. So, <laughs> so for, for non-Puerto Rican readers, uh, what, well, what do you then, hope to take away? Then, okay. First of all, maybe this will help you understand where Puerto Rico is because after Hurricane Maria, it was ridiculous how many people didn't even know that Puerto Ricans oh were Americans, although yeah. that's not part of this book, yeah. but, uh, but not, maybe you'll understand why, um, often you feel like Puerto Ricans aren't grateful. And this could give you an idea of why uh, Puerto Ricans might not be grateful to be affiliated with the United States. Just, you know, what a clue. Um, but I think it's important for everyone to know, um, to know history. And especially Puerto Ricans to know our history because when we know our history, somebody just recently said and uh, this event that I did, one of the, you know, the questions that people ask, uh, the, the comments, somebody said in the comments that for the first time in her life, she's not ashamed to be Puerto Rican. Because when you grow up, when you don't know who you are and people are so prejudiced against you and comment about you and, and tell you to get on the boat, people have told me that. Um, so all of this chips away at if you even had self-confidence. Um, and, and so I feel like I am so grateful to hear those kind of comments. And I feel like I did my job because I did it. I wanted this book to be something that would uh, serve as a, a source of pride uh, for being Puerto Rican. So I did it for myself, my sisters, my children, and anybody else who needs it, who needs it, who doesn't know it. Really well said, Maricel. For people that have listened to this episode and want to keep up with you after they're done listening, um, how can people keep up with you? Well, I have a website, my name, and I also have uh, the Taste of Sugar um, Facebook page, 
And the uh, I have an author page, which is uh, I'll probably post like things related to um, the girls from the Humble Park on that one, but the other one's just a taste of sugar. And then I'm also on Twitter. Sometimes I post, but usually I repost about Puerto Rico. That's <laughs> what I usually post. And uh, and I have an Instagram and I'm writing B2 on Instagram. And that one I really like because I, I love to post like pictures, mm -hmm. you know, and say things that uh, just weird things that come to my head. So that one I do for fun. Love <laughs> that. Maricel Vera, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast. This was so fun. This was so fun. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for being on. Thanks to Mari Selvera for being on the show today. Looking ahead to January, we're going to have a number of awesome interviews to share, including interviews with Chicago Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez, founder of Latino Rebels and co-host of the show In the Thick, Julio Varela, health and wellness expert Costanza Eliana Chinea, and some other surprise guests and announcements we've locked in for 2021, but you'll have to stick around next year for those. As a reminder, if you want to pitch a story, uh, be it your own story, nominating someone else for an interview, or something in the news you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. Until then, we hope you have a happy holiday season and see you in the new year. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.